0: Welcome to The Naked Truth, Real Talk about West Coast Swing. My name is Eric, and this is a special episode on the current coronavirus outbreak and how we as dancers can prepare and respond to the situation. The virus has spread rapidly around the globe in the last two months, first in China and then to neighboring countries, the Middle East, Europe, and here in the United States. It is a respiratory illness that affects people of all ages, genders, and nationalities. So far, around 80% of infected people get mild flu-like symptoms and recover, but another 14% get more severe symptoms or complications, and 2% of those infected have died, most of whom were either elderly or had other health conditions. We are learning more about this virus each day, what it is, how it works, and how to protect ourselves, but it is also spreading further each day. To be honest, I have been particularly aware of this illness in recent weeks. My girlfriend, Chini, went to Italy on a two-week business trip on February 17th. She was working at one of her company's offices north of Venice. Because it was Carnavale, she went to Venice on Saturday, February 22nd to see some of the celebrations. Well, as it turns out, the day before, a cluster of cases of the virus appeared to the west, in Lombardy. And the same day she went to the Carnavale celebrations, another 60 cases were reported, including Italy's first death from the disease. That weekend I was at Rose City Swing in Portland, Oregon, so I wasn't really paying attention to the news. But Saturday night, which was Sunday morning in Italy, I got a call from Chini, worried about the rapid spread of the virus in Lombardy and the region where she was, Veneto. Venice officials decided to close Carnavale that Sunday and a handful of towns were placed under quarantine. Milan's La Scala Opera House was cancelling performances, the Milan fashion show cancelled events, and flights were being restricted out of Milan's Malpensa airport. My girlfriend and I were not only worried about her being exposed and catching the illness, but getting out of the country, and, since she's not an American citizen, getting back into the United States. Fortunately, she was able to change her flights and leave Italy on Tuesday, February 25th. She made it home without a problem, thank goodness, but that wasn't the end. Knowing Cheney might have been exposed, I called my mom, a retired registered nurse, to ask her what precautions we should take. She made the standard recommendations, wash your hands, keep your distance, sleep in separate bedrooms, and take her temperature periodically since one of the first symptoms of this kind of flu is a fever. Chini was asked to work from home for two weeks, the incubation period for this disease being up to 14 days, and since she was at risk, I was at risk too, so my boss asked me to work from home as well. Of course, with all of that, I had to think about how to handle my dance classes and my other dance-related obligations here in the Twin Cities. Chini hasn't shown any signs of infection or illness. She's periodically seen her doctor, but it's likely we're in the clear. Still, we're playing it safe, laying low, washing our hands a lot, and minimizing our interactions with others. This is all to say that this topic has been on my own mind, but I wasn't aware of how much it was affecting others until Monday night. That's when Brandy Guild called me, worried about her upcoming trip to Mad Jam, followed by a family vacation. We chatted a bit about the risks and the realities, and I thought this was something we should all be talking about as a community. And thus, this episode was born. In the first part of this episode, I sat down with Dr. John Blaska. John is a healthcare professional here in Minneapolis, and he's also a member of our local dance community. I asked him to explain what this virus is, how it spreads, and how we can protect ourselves and our fellow dancers. Please note, this interview is not meant to be a source of medical care. If you have questions about your own health, you should talk with your own medical professional that knows your situation better for personalized information and care. This interview is also not meant to scare anyone, but to provide some information so people can make decisions for themselves. People should take this information and then do what is comfortable for them. With that said, here is my very informative conversation with Dr. John Blaska. Dr. John Blaska, why don't you tell the people listening a little bit about yourself? Um, so my specialty is in healthy
1: aging and longevity. Um, from a clinical standpoint, I basically help put the science in people's daily lives. Uh, make sure people have strategies for um, chronic disease, for possibly for infectious agents. Um, obviously, that's a kind of a bundle to kind of take on, but I focus mostly on chronic disease. But I tell you I help people take the science and put it into their daily lives. So we treat disease, we devise strategies for it, we help people prevent disease. Those are all the things we do.
0: Excellent. Well then you're the perfect man to talk to to help us translate and understand the science of what's happening right now. So we understand that a respiratory illness arose in Wuhan, China, a version of a coronavirus, COVID-19. The outbreak started at the very end of 2019, hence its name, and it has since spread to Korea, Japan, Italy, and now the U.S. and a number of other countries, Iran, and others. What can you tell us about what this virus is? So COVID-19 is the disease that's
1: caused by SARS-CoV-2. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, the virus itself is the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, uh, COVID-19 is a little bit more succinct and that's the disease that we're seeing where people are getting uh fever, respiratory distress. So dyspnea, which is difficulty breathing, um, cough. And, uh, and then there are some lighter variations, which people would more interpret as a cold. Mm -hmm. So the symptoms are a little bit lighter and that's about 80% of the population that we've been recorded so far. And these numbers are going to be very variable in the next few months. Um, 20% are being hospitalized or need some sort of treatment, and 2% are are unfortunately um, dying as of yet. But it seems like the 2% is going down because we're finding more cases. Mm -hmm. So the hard part about this in the beginning is once we know what to look for, we ultimately are going to find it because we're testing for it. So we do like the trend um, that the the death rate is going down, and so that's a good sign. uh, But we still have to deal with it and take it seriously.
0: Yeah, how does this compare to SARS and MERS that we've seen previously?
1: So MERS is Middle Eastern. So Middle East is ME, um, and then SARS in 2002 was mostly the, the um, in in Asia, and and then it did spread, um, but they seemed to kind of die off fairly quickly. Um, they were quite significant
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and not to be taken lightly, but um, they didn't. They they kind of had a short run and and then kind of diminished from there.
0: Yeah. So this is a respiratory illness and primarily affects our respiratory system. How does it work and how do symptoms show themselves over time?
1: So the hard part about this is that we don't have a lot of the information for the more mild cases because no one's tracking that information. No one's sitting there with a clipboard asking what are your symptoms and that type of stuff. So uh, what we're seeing uh, from the the people who are are hospitalized or who people who have shown up and possibly were turned away, um, they have high fever um, and like 90-some percent of the cases, like 95, I think, even um, for high fever, uh, cough. And then the difficulty breathing seems to show about a week later, which suggests, unfortunately, that we're probably treating those people too late. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting a week before we're actually getting the care they need. Um, that's probably our opportunity to improve the outcomes on this. And that's a bigger discussion than you probably want to get into today.
0: (laughs) So the first symptom then is often the
1: fever. The fever. So fever, chills, body aches is going to be consistent for most of these aggressive types. And so that is true for flu. And that is also true for for this coronavirus. Right. Is there a way for people to distinguish between
0: coronavirus and the flu?
1: Not without a test. You wouldn't be able to do it. And so um, in both cases, you want to take the fever seriously because the fever, what happens with the fever is the fever leads to dehydration, um, when we're not feeling well, we're not eating as well. Mm-hmm. And so when you get four, five, six, seven days in, that's where people end up in the hospital.
0: Right. And how is this disease currently being transmitted from person to person?
1: So the the, the reproduction value on this, the last time I saw, was about 2.6. Um, to give you an idea of reproduction value, reproduction value is, is uh, for one person that has it, about 2.6 people will get it. Mm-hmm. Um, the range it tends to be consistent with where we would see flu again, which is about the three to five foot range. Whereas like measles can be carried on the wind and, and can move dozens of feet. If not, you know, I've seen speculation as to as much as 100 feet. Mm-hmm. But uh, to give you a reference there, uh, measles is a, has a reproduction value of 12 to 18. So much more infectious. Mm-hmm. So flu will spike sometimes around three. The, the seasonal flu aggregate is usually about one point three, so it's it's about half of what we're seeing with uh, with the coronavirus. But people have antibodies; people have had the flu in the past; they've been exposed to flu in the past. Right. So it's hard to kind of get a full um, full understanding as to how if a person had exposure this year, but maybe had no symptoms, um, or maybe they had very light symptoms, and so we wouldn't know the actual true reproduction value. And that's where the sure. numbers get a little difficult.
0: Yeah. So, this is spread through droplets in the air, um, through people expelling water vapor? Correct. And then transmitted through touch to the hands, to the face, to the nose, to the eyes?
1: Right. So, the um, so again, there's a consistency with the flu. They, both of these have a lipid envelope. And the lipid envelope means that there's a fatty acid shell around the, the RNA in this case. Um, and so... There's two ways to kind of ultimately deactivate it, and one is shedding it, and so have it being a lipid. Water repels, you know, um, fats. Soap helps break the, the adhesion from fats. So if you have mm-hmm. grease on your finger, use soap to break the break the adhesion onto your on your hand. And so that's why washing your hands is by far the number one best thing you can do. And the other one you can do is you can is a desiccant, meaning you dry it out. And so you're drying out that lipid layer. And that lipid layer cracks and then it it deactivates the the RNA. And so that's where the hand sanitizer uh, strategy comes in. The challenge there is you have to execute well, Mm -hmm. okay? With the hand sanitizers, you need to have rubbing because you need to cleave the virus and make it available to be uh, encapsulated by the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then it needs to dry completely to crack that shell. And so depending on how well we execute, depending on the sanitizer and all this type of stuff, it's a good one to to leverage but don't use that as the number one go to wash your hands with soap and water start there and then when you, if you are using the sanitizer gel um, rub your hands just like you're washing so sing sing the songs that everyone's there's like there's actually a twitter feed out there that has a whole bunch of songs that you can alternate for like the 20 seconds right. and the dancers probably be you know all up on that i'm sure
0: <laughs> yeah so there's a lot of concern about the virus lasting so if somebody coughs on a surface how long would the virus last there i think we're trying to figure that out okay. i think this
1: the i think they're erring on the side of caution mm-hmm. and so certainly probably hours and probably really comes down to how long that droplet um, dr- how long it takes for it to dry mm-hmm. and whether that 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 lipid layer actually fully dries because it could be encapsulated in other uh, fluids from the body um, and so even if it looks dry to us the virus can be underneath the layer and so itself has been, it's still maintained. So it needs to be desiccated. It needs to be dried out to be able to fully have it, you know, be safe. And so that's the unknown. We don't know how long that ultimately lasts. Right. The baseline is probably, we're seeing trends again towards the same thing with flu.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, um, so follow the same instructions there. Hygiene is really the best, the best really go-to on all this wipe down your hard surfaces, get used to doing it again. You can just need hot water, a cloth, and soap, Mm -hmm. right? You don't need fancy, you know, chemicals or anything. You can use that if you like, but but if you use a washcloth and you let the washcloth fully dry, we're we're fulfilling all the properties there that we need to do. So get used to wiping down your surfaces. And and this is good. It's good
0: kitchen etiquette.
1: It's good, you know, good environmental etiquette for your bathroom, for everything else. So just get used to it again anyways.
0: Yeah. So is this something that can be transmitted when people are not showing symptoms.
1: Yes, because all that has to happen is that lipid layer has to be intact. Mm-hmm. Lipid layer is the, the shell or the part of, uh, that protects the RNA inside. Mm-hmm. So that lipid layer just serves as a protective shell and until it lands on a cell and it's able to transmit the RNA into the cell in the body, and then the replication begins. So it should be less likely... Because the amount of viral viral load that a person would pick up and then re, you know, transfer or shed to someone else should be, that should be a fairly low. And so the person to be, to be carrier without being infectious, um, one, that person would have to be, um, you know, maybe it was just previously exposed, but they'd have to have enough virus on them to, to be able to share that, to be able to shed that to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it absolutely can be done. But in this case, you'd look at it as like the person be just like a hard surface. So, if there's a droplet landing on the hard surface and that person happens to touch that one spot where that droplet was, but that can them with flu, that can have with cold. You know, when people talk about stomach flu, so flu flu is its own family. So, stomach flu doesn't exactly exist, but we call it the stomach flu. Stomach flu is a different uh, viral family. Um, most of the time, so people can get flu, high fever, and then they can vomit because of the high fever. And that's where the trans, that's where mm-hmm. people kind of merge the idea that flu can cause stomach flu, right. but the most stomach bugs, the most common one is a norovirus, mm-hmm. at least in the U S. And so that's technically the stomach, the 24 hour bug that people get. Right. So all those can be transmitted in the same way. Enterovirus, yeah. which is in our whole, uh, family, all these can be transmitted in the same way. So the hygiene is the same thing.
0: So let's talk about dancers, Sure, right? What we do inherently requires that we come in close contact with people within three feet and that we touch them physically. Dancing socially involves that. And of course, weekend events are people coming from all over the globe, Mm -hmm. potentially exposed places to convene for an intense (laughs) three days of a lot of close contact. Should people be worried about either dancing locally or going to a weekend convention? Um, I think it depends
1: on how you define worry. Okay. So the challenge of this virus is we don't generally, at least we, so far, we haven't identified anyone who has natural antibodies, mm-hmm. which means they were exposed to the virus previously. So whether exposed to an unknown one that we'd never seen before and just happened to go around and people had it and they have natural antibodies, um, so that becomes the challenge. Is that so? If this is truly novel, which so far it seems to be, uh, we don't have the defense. Um, that we might think we have for other things. So people should make their choices accordingly. So if the people are going to be high risk people who have uh, asthmatic and or bronchial history, uh, issues with, with that previous viral load or pathogenic burden, what we call. So pathogenic burden is the burden we carry from being sick previously, um, that is still somehow in the body. So if you were sick last week, you probably still have some remnants of that. If you were sick, you know, a long time ago, which is, um uh, which we know like chicken pox, which shows up as shingles or uh, um, um, mono reoccurs um, Mm -hmm. and and has problems. Those are all uh, levels of pathogen and burden. so a person should weigh their risk there um, and and plan accordingly. So that's the challenge of of worry is like, I would not want anyone to be scared. Mm -hmm. Um, I would want people to be comfortable and confident. But if we're thoughtful, we should have less worry.
0: Right. So if people choose to go to an event, they're healthy – they have, don't have any sort of respiratory preconditions. What can and should they do to take precautions? The biggest thing is
1: going to be the hygiene. Mm-hmm. And so get used to washing your hands with soap. And so with dancers, probably I mean, a couple of times a night, you should probably wash elbows down type of – I mean, obviously it obviously depends if you're wearing a shirt or something like that. Um, people should get used to uh, taking a shower before they go to bed. If people are sick, just the best thing you can do, anyways. This is with flu. This is with a cold. I mean, cold is obviously we put up with a little bit more, but this is COVID's going to um, make us reconsider our, our all the, all the components here of right. what we've taken for granted in the past. But just out of courtesy, you shouldn't expose other people if you feel, if you're feeling under the weather. Mm-hmm. So then, yeah, you know, my recommendation probably like water bottles versus you know cups. Because um, cups can pick up stuff from floating in the air, and water bottles should have a cap um, and ideally should be used by one person. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the close contact and dancing is really like you know, it's going to happen. So, you just want to reduce the risk. So, don't expose people. Um, if, if you're, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of conversations. I think you having this conversation should be continued by pretty much everyone attending events going forward. Just have a, a, a comfort level chat with where people's comfort levels are um, and event directors should bring us up and discuss it. They should have a hygiene policy. The event director should absolutely have a hygiene policy. Uh, I would recommend the water bottles. I would recommend um, a wipe down schedule. So like everything, everything in the ballroom that you think that a dancer might touch should be wiped down on a regular basis, right? So whether someone from their event is doing it or whether the hotel or the, the, the site is doing it, um, they should have a schedule Airing out the ballroom, so um, because it's only, it only travels in a certain base and because these don't travel well outdoors. And so, airing out the ballroom, so getting the ballroom to be empty and letting the ventilation do it, or possibly if there are outdoor exits to the ballroom, opening those doors for a bit um, will help to a certain extent. So, those are, those are things, I think, are probably the best thing to consider.
0: Is there anything event directors should be on the lookout for or be prepared to respond to in the case that somebody does appear sick at their event?
1: Um, I think this is where it's going to get complicated Mm -hmm. because to what extent do the event directors want to intervene? Mm -hmm. And, and so I think the best results are going to come from a community conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, The event directors obviously want people to show up and people want to go. Um, And I think there, there needs to be a conversation there to say, okay, if a high fever um, uh, is, is probably the biggest risk. Um, and I would say that's probably the place you want to, you really want to invest, um, some conversation and how do you measure that? Do you want to have people at the door or checking people's temperatures and temperature? People's temperatures are going to be up dancing in a hot room. Right. So you can make you know, inappropriate conclusions there. Um, you're moving into people's privacy, um, you know, as far as healthcare goes. Um, so I think this is where it becomes challenging. I think a good conversation. I think a vet director should literally have a conversation. They should have a hygiene policy on their as far as the event goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so asking people to to wash, you know, I don't have to do it after every single dance. The risk is there because you're because people are dancing, but throughout the night, people should take their turn kind of washing you know elbows down, you know, possibly washing their face, you know, showering, those type of things. And try to ask people to be as courteous as possible. Right. I think that's probably the best way to do it. So then you don't have people that, are, that feel offended one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I think if people, more people have a conversation about it and follow the basics, the fundamentals are going to matter. And, and the fundamentals are hygiene first. right? Um, and then from that point on, then it, yeah, it gets a little more murky as far as decision-making goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the high fever would be the, the alarming component of it. But that would be for flu too. Right, And so this policy shouldn't be for this specific disease. It should just be for a good and dense environment anyways.
0: Yeah. We were talking before we recorded that we've seen stomach flu go around in an event, right? Everybody right. leaves at the event, and they all have stomach flu or some flu period. Right, And the fact that I know for me, you know, these weekends are intense. It's not just that I'm exposed to more, but the lack of sleep, maybe I'm not eating as well. You know, I imagine my immune system is going to be Suppressed a little bit for sure during those weekends. So I think people taking care of themselves. You know, it's just like you said, good practice regardless of global epidemics or not.
1: Right. People are just going to be better, uh, feel better, and be more content. And then we'll get past this little hiccup where people are really concerned. And and um, and not to make light of this, but but it's 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 going to even out to the best that it's going to. And the part where we can take some solace in this is that the trend is going to where we expect which is more cases are showing up and the severe cases are starting to shrink.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, doesn't mean that people should take that lightly because you don't know if you're going to be one of the severe cases. But, you know, this is likely going to be something we're going to have to deal with going forward, just like we do with flu season. And so, learning how to, to process this is going to be good for for everybody anyways.
0: Right. So what does the future of COVID-19 look like? Do we have a sense of how long this might last, how much more it might spread, and when we can expect a vaccine?
1: Um, so the, there have been a number of opportunities in the vaccine space that have been identified. I think there was one in, if it was Scotland or UK, that was a couple of weeks ago. There was one in San Diego, um, I think this past week, the way a vaccine has to be delivered is the complicated part. And so they need a candidate. The candidate has to go through candidate screening, which is usually three to, you know, sometimes even six months. Mm -hmm. And then to actually make it into a vaccine with testing and everything, um, it's likely a good year and a half. Mm -hmm. So to give you an idea from flu, um, so they're planning flu vaccines now for next fall. Mm -hmm. So they're picking the vaccines they're going to make, and then they're going to put them in play. And it takes about, you know, four or five, six months to get it to the, the 15 million or, I mean, there's more than that. 15 million cases of flu this year, but there's more um, vaccines available, mm-hmm. of course. And so it takes a while for that to build. So they have this. They need a candidate. They need a candidate that was proven that that needs to be tested for safety. They need to then build it and then be able to ship it. So it's going to be a while before we can rely on a vaccine to to help. Um, so that goes back to people, um, you know, taking care of themselves and. Uh, we always talk about stress, diet, and sleep because stress, diet, and sleep really affect every disease um, because the two things that really influence us across the board are pathogenic burden and inflammatory burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're not sleeping well, we're not eating well, um, we're not managing stress well, inflammatory burden is going to be high. So that means immune system is going to be taxed because it's taking care of that inflammation. Mm-hmm. So the risk of getting sick goes up. Right. And so, so individuals going to these events, get your sleep. Eat well, eat thoughtfully, um, and and then um, I mean, hopefully stress is low at these events, Um, (laughs) unless you're competing. Unless you're competing, I was just going to say that. (laughs) Um, But um, so that's where individuals can take it, and then you know, look out for people. Don't try to blame people. Don't try to don't make assumptions about people. Um, People have people are going to have allergies people are going to have a cough because it's dry people are going to have a cough because they swallowed wrong and so we need to make sure we're looking out for our friends and and uh um if we do that we're going to have the best results by far um and so if people aren't feeling well then yes um, ask your friend to to you know stay away from the crowd mm-hmm. and help them you know however you're able to do so if we do that we have our best our best opportunities for people to go have fun um and reduce the risk as much as possible
0: excellent Well, thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. For sure. Thanks. John was great at explaining the science of this disease and in thinking through what practices we all should adopt to protect ourselves, not just from COVID-19, but all communicable diseases in general. Washing our hands thoroughly with soap, Avoiding touching our faces, using water bottles, staying home when we're not feeling well, and taking care of our own health by managing sleep, diet, and stress. These are things we should be doing all the time. His advice to event directors is good for community leaders too. Provide hand sanitizer, wipe down surfaces, and keep the dance space ventilated. Again, people should make their own decisions about whether and how to engage with fellow dancers, with the goal being minimal risk and maximum health which gets me to the second part of this interview. After talking with John, I sat down again with Brandy to see how she was feeling and to hear her concerns and deliberations. She is not only a dance professional, but also a wife and mother, and just a generally considerate and conscientious person. John provided some of the scientific information we need to make decisions, but I thought it would be good to also share a discussion about how people do make those decisions for themselves. So here now is my conversation with Brandy Guild about how to respond to COVID-19. So you are on staff for Mad Jam this weekend. It's a big event.
3: I am. I love this event. Yes. Yeah.
0: And people are coming from all over the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people they had last year, but it's definitely over 1,000, 1,500, something like that, yeah. maybe even more. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they're all coming to the same hotel for a weekend to be very physically close to one another.
3: <laughs> we're going to spend a weekend touching each other. <laughs> right.
0: um, and definitely being within three feet of each other. <laughs> so Within
3: three feet of each other. Yes. Yeah.
0: So how are you feeling going into this? Um, And I know you have plans afterwards, too, but you're a mother and you have a family and young children. So what are your thoughts and concerns?
3: So my first thought is I'm young, I'm healthy. My husband's young and healthy. My children are young and healthy. And the coronavirus doesn't appear to affect any of our age brackets
2: Mm
3: -hmm. overly severely. Uh, But I really want to believe that I'm part of a society that looks after the more vulnerable And I can't help but think of how much potential I, as a single person, have to spread this, should I be exposed. Mm -hmm. So I am a cautious person by nature. I would say I'm pretty risk-averse, you may have noticed in my (laughs) dancing. And um, I, I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay, so I go to Mad Jam. I spend the weekend in close contact with all of these people. And hypothetically, let's say I'm exposed. I won't be symptomatic right away. And from Mad Jam, guess where I'm going? Disney World. So on Sunday at Mad Jam, I'm meeting my husband and my kids in Orlando to spend a week at Disney World where I could potentially be in contact with thousands of people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And that idea that I could potentially spread this to somebody that could be absolutely damaged by it is terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, I've been watching it really closely. I'm not a fatalist. I have not stocked up on masks or toilet paper. <laughs> uh, I, I like to think I'm a rational human being that acquires information from good sources and makes decisions accordingly. And I have to say that the response I'm seeing on social media is quite disheartening hmm. with people either accusing others of being overdramatic or people completely dismissing it. and. Um, not just respecting the fact that every single one of us has a different life. We have different risk factors. We have a different experience. We have a different lifestyle. We can potentially affect other people uh, knowingly or unknowingly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that, that we open our minds to let each individual make the choice that feels best for them Mm -hmm. and that we're supportive of that. And, um, I had the privilege of listening to your conversation that you had earlier with John. And I'm finding that the more concrete medical information I get, the less scary this all feels. Mm -hmm. Because I think this is going to get bigger than a lot of people think. Do I think it's the apocalypse? No. But I do think it's going to touch people in our community. And I think it's going to touch people that are close to all of us. And it's something that I'm hyper aware of. I've made right. some phone calls the last couple of days to some of my friends that are in the age brackets that are more likely to be affected. And I've been like, okay, where are you? Where are you going? What are your plans? Uh, because I think it's important that we check in with people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But as of now, I've decided, uh, of course, I'm going to Mad Gym. I'm working at Mad Jam. I'm going to be ultra aware of hygiene and washing hands and desperately trying not to touch my face, even when my nose itches because I'm thinking about it. And then as of now, I'm planning on meeting my family and spending a week at Disney world. I'll do everything I can. I have my children practicing now to not touch their faces. They're not doing a great job, by the way. (laughs) Um, I think that's all we can do and I'm keeping a close eye on it. And if I get a lot more information between now and then I might change my mind and I reserve the right to do so. Right. I'm just trying not to act prematurely.
0: Right. Yeah. That makes sense.
3: So that's where I am now. Yeah. I, my brain thinks about it a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would but, imagine. And like you said, there's, yes. there's two different sides of it, right? There's exposing yourself um, and the exposure that you may get it again, you're healthy. And I would say most dancers who go to conventions and dance all weekend are of the healthy variety. I think people are pretty good about. I mean, even tonight I had dance class and I had three people who didn't show up because they weren't feeling well. You know, I think people are good about if they're not feeling well, staying away from others. Um, but I think you make a good point that even if you know a thousand people come together for a weekend who are all healthy, even if they are swapping it around, you're all going to go home and you're going to go home to all sorts of different communities and interact with all sorts of different people. And you are potentially putting them at risk.
3: It feels borderline irresponsible at like to a point Mm -hmm. where when I really think about it, um, it doesn't feel good to me Mm -hmm. to potentially expose people. Yeah. And we also have to remember that not everyone in the dance community is young and healthy. Right. The fatality rates of this, they're going to change as we get more information, but it's looking like they they start to increase exponentially over the age of 60. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very mindful of those people. I want to be mindful of those dancers. And I want to be mindful of those people in our community that run a much greater risk from something like this than maybe you or I do.
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like you said, it's kind of up to the individual to make that choice. And certainly it's not, you know, you're going to the event. It's not that people shouldn't go to a dance event and have good time, but
2: right.
0: we are going to have to be more mindful. I mean, it is. And, you know, talking with John about this too, it's, it's not like we should be doing anything differently. <laughs> we should be hygienic anyway in something that's so right. physical as dance. Um, yeah. But it does pose a dilemma when we're exposed potentially to something that is spreading very rapidly and something that people do not seem to have immunity to or antibodies to, right? It's new, it's novel. So yeah, I think there is a a, a choice that people need to make. You know, it's, there's a choice and we talked about this with John too, but there's a choice that individual dancers have to make and then event directors, you know, event directors Mm -hmm. have to decide not only how to handle their event and keep people safe, but they also need to think about, I don't know, I I was having this conversation over dinner, but what if somebody chooses not to go to the event and asks for a refund? because of the coronavirus, they have a respiratory illness or, you know, how does an event director handle that? And I'm not saying how they should, or if they need to, I mean, that's a business decision, not a medical one, right. but I feel like right. there are going to be situations that come up that event directors are probably going to have to be prepared for.
3: Absolutely. I, I teach group classes in San Diego and typically people pay for the month and I don't have a refund policy, mm-hmm. but I am going to start offering Uh, credit for the next month if somebody opts to stay home because they're ill. Hmm. I do not want people showing up to events sick because they're afraid of losing the money that they've spent on a pass. I don't want people showing up to class sick because they're afraid of losing that money. I think maybe some concessions could be made at this particular stage for people that are at higher risk, and maybe this just isn't a good idea for them right now.
0: Yeah. Or even people showing symptoms, potential symptoms, right? Because they're more likely to be transmitting to other people. Right. It's, uh, yeah, I, I've been dealing with this locally, um, in part because there's a chance I've been exposed, and I'm having to make those choices. I had to make the choice of whether to even, like, go to my class as an instructor. Right. And, um, I mean, fortunately, Cheney's not showing any symptoms or any signs of fighting an infection of any kind but we have been isolating ourselves we have been working at home right and cheney actually got home last tuesday and i decided not to go home before class just to like minimize i didn't want to have any interaction with her um, mm-hmm. but i had to make the decision tonight like this class doesn't happen if i don't teach it and so i had to make the choice of like do i go and kind of like you going to Manjam, jam you know i'm like it's my job. It's my duty. And I have a responsibility to these people and I want to (laughs) go like, I want to go to class. So, you know, I I do a whole thing of like cleaning my hands before I wash my hands after I'm already kind of a little OCD about hygiene. Like it dances. If I feel like I dance with somebody who was a little sweaty, I go and wash my hands. (laughs) Um, when I wash my hands, I have gotten in the habit of, I wash my hands. I take the paper towel, where paper towels are available, and then I wash my hands and I will use the paper towel to open the door and then throw the paper towel out because I'm good about washing Mm -hmm. my hands, but I don't know about the other dudes who just went to the bathroom.
3: (laughs) No, that is an alarming, alarming thing to realize. (laughs) Yes. There was one time I taught a group class. This was many years ago, but I taught a group class and before the class, I put a new roll of paper towels in Mm -hmm. and- there were at least four gentlemen that went to use the restroom over the course of the class and after classes over, like the new seal on the paper <laughs> towel that attached has not yet been broken. Oh, that's
0: not cool.
3: And so, no, we don't even want to think about the implications. So yes, we should all be very <laughs> aware of our hygiene, especially in the dance community. And I think this is going to push us to maybe a hyper-awareness for a while that I hope sticks around. I will admit that I am pretty lax during flu season.
2: Mm-hmm. I get a
3: flu shot at the beginning of the season. I travel a lot. I do my best, uh, but I don't think about it. Right. Like it's not something that I spend any thought on. If I get sick, I get sick. I'm young and healthy. I'm going to get through it. So, this is a different place to be to actually be so concerned about it. And um and like I said, more concerned for the transmission to others than necessarily to me. Right. I don't know what the right answers are.
0: I'm hoping, like you said, that this causes a just shift in our norms, you know, that yeah. event directors do have a hygiene policy or some way of minimizing the spread of any sort of disease. I mean,
3: anything.
0: The, I've seen people walk away from events, getting the stomach flu and like, you know, just regular flu. Or All cold. sorts
3: of respiratory. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I would love for us to somehow find a way to gently hold each other accountable, Mm
2: -hmm. hold
3: each other accountable for staying away when we are ill or even potentially ill, Uh, hold each other accountable to look after ourselves. I mean, these weekends, it's no secret that we go without sleep. We go without food. Mm -hmm. We often don't take care of ourselves from a hydrating standpoint. And so we let our immune systems get compromised just due to circumstance then you couple that with everything else we may or may not be passing around and it's kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Even under the best of circumstances, I come home from these events feeling shattered. Right. And then you throw you throw any sort of virus in that and Oh yeah. We have a mess up on-
0: for sure. It takes me like a week to recover from dance events now. <laughs> I mean, like just, well, one, I'm not as young as I used to be. And two, you just don't get as much sleep or it's intermittent sleep. I'm not eating regular full meals like I used to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a different situation. I, I do hope that people will think about how we kind of embed hygiene into our community. Um, cause the other thing I'm thinking about too, is as instructors, how do we talk about that? I feel like there's been a push to talk about, I don't know, like safety and consent in our communities, but how about just basic yeah. hygiene? I mean, it's not that we never talk about it. And I certainly talk about like washing hands and changing your shirt if you're sweaty. Yeah,
3: and, yeah, but I feel like that tends to be a lot more from uh, like, a, you know, make sure you're using deodorant, make like, sure you're not wearing too much perfume. It tends to be more about the considerations for others, like when comfort. it comes to comfort yeah that's a good way to say it instead of it actually coming down to help
0: right yeah and we do need to think about how we're doing that i actually (laughs) i just got a message from my leadership team at mission city swing and it's they have their anniversary dance tomorrow which is awesome sixth anniversary but they get a huge crowd for that and there was a reported case in berkeley there have been reported cases in santa clara county to the south and so we're debating it like how do we handle this? How do we make sure that we're creating a sanitary, healthy place for people to come together and dance
3: if they choose to do that? Right. And I think one of the things that's really important and this is something I will address in my classes tomorrow. I spoke with the owner of our studio and I suggested I think it's important for um, business owners in the dance community right now to address this head on. Instead of just sticking their head in the sand, Mm -hmm. it goes a long way to send out an email um, or a posting on a Facebook page saying, we're well aware of what's going on. And here's what we're doing to minimize your risk. And this is what we will provide. This is what we suggest for you. Requesting that people who are ill or potentially ill stay away. We love you. We want to see you again when you're well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think we would all be remiss if we just pretended it wasn't going on and didn't mention it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I was laughing because I was like, hmm, maybe this month in class we'll focus on visually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do all sorts of mirroring exercises from across the room. let
3: see how little we can touch each other. <laughs> Three foot radius.
0: <laughs> right. At all times.
3: Yeah, that doesn't work.
0: Not really. Well, I'm glad you're feeling a little more at ease, I think about the situation. Yeah,
3: about. we should we should tell our we should tell our listeners that I called you yesterday, desperately <laughs> begging you to be a voice of reason because I had myself worked into a froth and I just needed somebody to talk me down.
2: Um, I don't know how much help?
3: But that no, was. As a <laughs> you were you were quite helpful, and I love where it led us to this discussion today. Yeah, um, because I think this is valuable for people to hear. I think it's valuable for people to hear all different perspectives the same rational medical perspective, the actual emotional perspective of people like you who potentially work, those mm-hmm. of me who knows exposure is a risk and who has a family and is trying to make decisions based on that. We're all just real people right. taking in information and doing the best we possibly can with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And I, I think if we all look at each other through that lens, we'll be a lot more tolerant of the decisions that uh, others are making. Is yeah. what I'm hoping we can. Do. Yes, agreed. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time with me.
0: <laughs> Thanks for sharing your concerns with me and with all the listeners. I think it's, it's really valuable oh, to hear, concern. again, hear your perspective of not only a mother, but a dance professional who's going to a really big event um, this coming weekend.
3: Yeah. And one thing I will say is uh, I, I think that from the messages I've got from Kay and Dave regarding Mad Jam is they're doing a great job of communicating with people, making expectations clear, and letting people know that if they're sick, they are loved but not welcomed. And if they are coming from any of the countries that are severely affected, that they are not to come to the event at this particular time. And they, it sounds like they've put some good, uh, good things in place to do everything they can to mm-hmm. keep people healthy. They have talked about having hand sanitizer at the wristband checkpoint and just making it a uh, common thing. When you walk through that door, you get your wristband checked and you sanitize your hands. And get they've a also of sanitizer. Talked- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think mean, it was great that they said no food in the ballroom,
2: hmm.
3: which. I think is a really great idea. I liked what John said earlier, and that's something I'm going to take to heart is making sure that I have my own water bottle with me mm-hmm. so that I have something I can put a cap on so I'm not depending on an open cup that could p- potentially be contaminated. Yeah. So little things like that, I think can go a long way in protecting all of us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for taking the time.
3: Hi, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Always a pleasure to talk to you.
3: Are you almost done with your self-imposed quarantine? Another week. Another week?
0: Well, she just got back last week, and it's 14 days, so.
3: Oh, gosh. Okay, well, if all goes well, I will FaceTime you from Disney World. Okay. (laughs) You can live vicariously through (laughs) me, even for just a few moments.
0: Yeah, hopefully it's still the happiest place on
3: Earth. (laughs) Maybe it'll be less crowded. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) maybe they're just overlining here. But it'll be me and my hand sanitizer and my disinfectant wipes. Excellent. You'll be able to see me coming.
0: Do you put suntan lotion on first or do you put hand sanitizer on first?
3: Hand sanitizer on first and a layer of sunscreen, rinse and repeat. Okay, cool. All day long. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Well, have a great vacation.
3: We will. Thank you. Take care of yourself and we'll talk soon. Sounds good.
0: Thanks so much. Bye. As always, Brandy is very thoughtful, mindful of her role and place and connection to others, and considerate of others' experiences and potential vulnerabilities. Her position as a local teacher and traveling pro, and my own as a local instructor and community leader, are only two experiences in our community. Each person must consider the risks and whether they are willing to assume those risks, given the reality of the situation. As Brandy noted, it's not just about the risk to ourselves, but the risk we may pose to others if we risk exposing ourselves. For many of us, hopefully, the risk is minimal, and we can go and dance safely. For others, they might have to consider their options more carefully. Either way, I hope this episode gave you some of the information you need to make those decisions, to be smart, safe, and healthy, whether you're a dancer, instructor, community leader, or event director. For more information, please see the footnotes to this episode. I've included a link to the World Health Organization website and a link to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention site. John provided me with some links from Johns Hopkins University, which map the outbreak so you can see affected areas. And of course, if you have questions about what your local dances or any dance events are doing to minimize the risk of spreading this disease, be sure to check their websites and Facebook pages And don't hesitate to reach out to them to ask questions. This disease is out there and it is spreading. So let's work together to stay informed and protect ourselves and our fellow dancers as best we can. What do you think? What will you do to minimize the risk of transmission to yourself and others? How concerned are you about the spread of COVID-19? Are you someone who is vulnerable or do you know people who are? What do you think community leaders and event directors should do to respond to the situation? And what can you do to support those who may be more susceptible or vulnerable? Share your thoughts with me and your fellow listeners. Please, this is important. We need to talk about this. You can post a comment on our website, you can respond to our posts on Facebook, or you can share your thoughts in our discussion group on Facebook. You can also email me at thenakedtruthwcs.com or through our Facebook page. To get the latest news about this podcast, you can like our page on Facebook, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter, follow us on Instagram at the naked truth WCS, and yep, I still post weekly updates on Twitter at naked truth WCS. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave us a review on Facebook, and if you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Eric, and that's The Naked Truth. And drinking
1: alcohol will not kill coronavirus. Drinking alcohol will not kill coronavirus (laughs) and will likely
0: um,
1: weaken your immune system.
0: Oh, there you go. So careful. Cheers. Careful (laughs) while drinking and dancing. Excellent.